0: Good morning, Incarnation. I feel like the Aflac duck right now. Just that. Um, i got kind of cold this weekend, so I, I uh, hope you can hear past my voice. Um, I, I'd like you to turn your Bibles to page 892, um, if you haven't already. We're in John 7. So oftentimes... Uh, with my work in college ministry, I will meet students on campus and these students will have no spiritual background whatsoever. And then I try to invite them to come and to study Jesus in the Bible, in the scripture, to look at the gospels. And usually I say something to them like this, I really want you to engage with Jesus And who he is. And I don't want you to worry about the fact that you don't have a Christian background. And I'll continue. During the life of Jesus, the ones who seemed farthest from God were actually the people who saw Jesus for who he was. It was the tax collectors, the sinners, the ones who really knew they were far from God and they needed help. They were the ones who recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And it was the religious leaders who seemed like they had it all together and knew they were right. They were the ones who not only misunderstood Jesus, but found themselves actively opposing him. And sometimes after I finish this kind of like, uh, you know, statement to students, I actually have the gift of them coming to Bible study, and, and sometimes they, they do see Jesus more clearly than the students who've grown up in church the whole lives. They see that Jesus really is the same Savior for their sins. They see them, uh, they say that Jesus is the powerful king. And we've been looking at the book of John for a while now, and a few weeks ago we saw the Samaritan woman in John 4. She's a promiscuous woman. She's from the region of Samaria. She definitely would not be considered a contender, or she would be considered a contender for someone who's farthest from God. It was the Samaritan woman. But she encounters Jesus, and she's able to recognize him so quickly as the Messiah, the one sent by God. And she walks away in utter freedom, and enjoy when she encounters the King of Kings. And today in the passage, we see the people whom you would think would recognize Jesus, the one who's sent by God. We see the brothers of Jesus. We see the people that have made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, a Jewish feast. We see the Jewish leaders. Just a quick aside. John calls, John often says the Jews, and what he means is not all Jews, uh, but the Jewish leadership here. So we have all these people, the, the Jewish pilgrims, the brothers of Jesus, the Jewish leadership, and they should be recognizing Jesus for who he is as the Messiah, because they know the scriptures. But in this passage, they fundamentally miss the identity of Jesus, that he's the one sent by God to give eternal life to all that would believe in him. So I'm not really going to preach expositionally today. I basically just want to focus on two verses and tell two stories. So let's look at verse uh, 7, John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says to his brothers, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus' brothers have essentially been saying to him in their previous verses, come on, do miracles more publicly, appeal to your base, (laughs) you're losing your disciples, go up to the feast in Jerusalem and show yourself for who you are. And even though Jesus' brothers knew that he did miracles, the texts say, that the brothers did not believe in him, they understood him maybe to be a miracle worker, but they didn't understand Jesus' true identity. The Samaritans in chapter four, they recognize Jesus and his true identity, but his own brothers do not. Jesus, the brother of Je- James, the brother of Jesus, he actually eventually goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. But at this time, he's completely oblivious to his brother's true identity as the Son of God. And Jesus says that the world can't hate his brothers. Why? Because his brothers are thinking just like the rest of the world. But Jesus is hated. And why? Because Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil. And this morning, church, I just want to make a simple call for those who know that they're walking in darkness to come into light. I want to make a call to those who are doing evil in secret to repent. Jesus says that he exposes the evil works of the world. If you continue in hidden sin... You may seem prosperous for a while, but death and destruction lie ahead. Jesus testifies against our evil works. And he does this not because he hates us or has a hypercritical disposition towards us. He testifies against our evil works because he loves us. And I want to illustrate that with this story. I remember when I was a little kid. I have this vivid memory. I was in the car with my dad and one of my best friends. And just a warning, this story is going to expose me as an evil jerk, and that's because I'm an evil jerk. Uh, And we're riding in the car. I'm about eight or nine years old. And I remember uh, I asked my friend, who are your best friends? (laughs) And he said me. It's like, yeah. Uh, and then he said another close friend of his. Then he asked me back who, who my best friends were, and I listed two other friends but not him. Purposely. He annoyed me sometimes, he was kind of a copycat, and I just kind of felt like, I don't need you, you know? And I remember him leaving the car. It's such a vivid memory. I remember where we were driving. I remember we dropped him off. And then I remember my dad sternly but calmly rebuking me. He exposed my meanness. And I felt a healthy sense of guilt. And my dad wasn't testifying against my evil works because... He was in a rage or because he was hypercritical. He was testifying against my evil works because he loved me. And he loved me enough to reveal my sin and to call me to repent. Jesus in his love calls us to repent, church. He exposes our works that are evil not to shame us, but because he desires that we would turn away from evil, receive his forgiveness, and walk in the light. Amen? So continuing on, we find out that Jesus does go up to the feast in verse 10. It actually seems very similar to John 2 the wedding at Cana, when Jesus' the mother, or when Jesus's mother, Mary, comes to Jesus and says, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, it's not my hour. And then he turns water into wine. It's like, wait a second, I thought you weren't going to deal with the wine problem, and look what you just did. <laughs> and then here, wait a second, Jesus, I thought you weren't going to go up to the feast, and there you go. <laughs> it's a similar situation. And the New Testament scholar Rod Whitaker notes that in both cases, Jesus does do what he's asked by his relatives, but he does it on his own terms, right? So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and he is the talk of the town. The Jewish leaders are looking for him. The pilgrims are divided, some saying he's a good man. Others saying he's leading people astray which is a very serious charge. They're calling him a false prophet, which is deserving of death. And so halfway through the feast, Jesus goes to the temple and he starts to preach. Jesus claims that his teaching isn't something that he came up with on his own, that his teaching is from God. And then in verse 17, look at it. It says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I'm going to read that again. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. As we were discussing this passage on Tuesday, Taylor made a comment, something to like. You know, it's easy for me to think that when we people aren't recognizing who Jesus is, that it's simply a lack of understanding. And I commiserated with Taylor. Like, ah, oh, I just may not, I must not be explaining this right. There's a reason why you don't understand Jesus, and it's because I'm not communicating well. And if we were to just clear up our mus- their misunderstandings about Jesus, then they would believe. But the reality that we see in this passage is that People don't believe in Jesus because they want to do their will and not God's will. And, and I don't want you to hear me saying that Christian apologetics aren't important and that giving reasons and defense of the faith isn't a good thing. I believe it is. If you look at the beginning of Luke, he writes, the gospel writer writes, that he wants to give an orderly account. So there's nothing wrong with reason and apologetics But so often, the barrier to recognizing Jesus for who he is is a matter of will and not in the mind. And so I want to tell you a second story to illustrate this. A friend of mine was meeting up with an old college friend who shared that he was falling away from the faith. And when my friend asked this friend who was falling away, what had happened, he started to kind of state some reasons for why he had lost his faith. And then my friend said, in response, he asked a question. Could the reason that you, be, that you fell away from faith be that you just didn't want to stop watching pornography? To which he responded, yes, <laughs> that's it. And I find the same thing over and over again as I meet with people who've fallen away from the faith. It's our self-centered will that prevents us from seeing Jesus for who he really is, as God. So after Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. And then he goes on to reveal the true self-centered will of the people. The people appear to be caring about the law of Moses, but with a couple quick statements, Jesus makes it clear that their judgment is tainted because their will is not God's will. They have the appearance of godliness, but they do not truly want to do the the will of God. And after Jesus goes back and forth with the people, we see in verse 31 that it says, many do believe, but the Jewish leadership try to arrest him. But it was futile. (laughs) They can't arrest him. But even when they finally do arrest him and they crucify him, it doesn't stop Jesus. Incarnation, resistance to Jesus is futile. (laughs) <laughs> we can join King Jesus and be victors with him, or we can oppose King Jesus and find ourselves on the side of death. But in the end, we will bow our knee to Jesus in reverence or in defeat. Philippians 2 says that at the name At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, things in heaven and in the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not merely a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a good man. Jesus claims to be the son of God. He's the creator of the world. And although... He would be justified to wipe us out. He gives us life and He restores our relationship with Him. Incarnation, surrender your will to God. Lay down your self centered ambitions lay down your own terms. God provides everything you need. Jesus gives his very flesh and blood for our eternal sustenance. As we receive Christ's body today, receive Christ's body and surrender your will. And I want to end today by making a little space for us to respond to the first verse we reflected on. Jesus loves you, and because he loves you, he exposes and testifies against our works of evil. He stands ready to forgive us. We can join King Jesus and be victors with him, or we can oppose King Jesus and find ourselves on the side of death, But in the end, we're going to find ourselves bowing at his feet. And I want to lead you in a simple prayer, knowing that uh, God can bring you out of your evil works of darkness and into his light. So I just want, if you feel ready to come out of darkness and come into light, I want us to create a moment. I'm going to create a moment for us to just pray right now. Take a moment. If you're aware of your opposition to Jesus (laughs) bubbling up inside you right now. I just want you to ask for help. And I just want to lead you in a simple prayer and and just repeat this silently to yourself. Dear Jesus, I don't want to hide in darkness any longer. I need you to forgive me, and I surrender myself to your leadership. Lead me out of darkness and into light. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do your will and not mine. I'm going to pray that prayer one more time and then we're going to close. Dear Jesus, I don't want to hide in darkness any longer. I need you to forgive me and I surrender myself to your leadership. Lead me out of darkness and into light. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do your will and not mine. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in you, and that you're the Son of God, who we can join in your victory and receive your mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen.